what I've noticed and what I've tried to do in my research is to shift the questions that we ask about them. So rather than looking at biological profile, which is really obscured through the burning process, to be looking at the burning process itself. So trying to learn about the funerary process of the cremation itself, or in forensic contexts, the the burning scenario that led to the bones being in the condition that they're in. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We know that pathology overlaps with and sometimes is dependent on other scientific fields, and this is even more apparent in forensic pathology. Today, we'll be looking at two of those fields. Dr. Lisa Minetti is a forensic anthropologist and bioarchaeologist. Now, if you're asking, what's bioarchaeology? Don't worry, we cover that. We'll also talk about how she came to specialize in burned and cremated remains and how she got involved in a project that took her to Belize. All right, here's Dr. Lisa Manetti. As usual, I'd like to go all the way kind of back to the beginning, you know, sort of the uh, origin story, I guess. And for you, I want to go back to undergrad because you studied anthropology. Right. And I'm curious about that, like, where did where did that what inspired you to study anthropology where did that interest come from yeah it's kind of a bit of a roundabout story which is okay. in a way like a good thing i think one of the strengths of forensic anthropology is that you can approach it from all these different kinds of academic backgrounds so i think that's something that's really like great about the field but yeah so i'll tell you my story and it's it's funny because Actually, today I was I was at work at Drew University where I teach, and I was sitting in the Bone Lab, which is kind of my like second office, sort of. And I was going through the questions. We're, we're going to have to talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll talk okay. about the Bone Lab. I okay. was I was going through the some of the questions you'd sent me, and just like think, you know, reflecting on on what I wanted to talk about and everything. And one of my students came in and was like. Dr. Minetti, like I'm, I'm graduating soon. And, um, you know, a lot of my professors are telling me that I should be thinking about grad school, but like, I'm totally lost. Like, can you tell me about your story? And I was like, this is perfect because I'm thinking about this right now for a podcast that I'm going to be talking on tonight. So it was was perfect. So I started undergrad, not really knowing what I wanted to do at all. I was just like, pretty lost, but really enjoyed learning. And I knew that I wanted to go to college because I liked learning and kind of being in that environment, but I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. And I changed my major a bunch of times. And I chose anthropology in the end because it was something that I could finish. um, I could still graduate on time if I switched to that as opposed to like all of the other majors. So it was really just like totally kind of random um, that it happened that way. I was like in my junior year and had just like wasn't didn't have anything really um, planned out. So I just kind of jumped into that because it sort of made sense logistically. So that was mostly sociocultural anthropology. And anthropology, as it's taught in North America, is really broad. We talk about, um, we have sociocultural anthropology, which is kind of what you think of when you think of anthropology. But there's yeah. also linguistic anthropology, archaeology, and biological anthropology, which is includes all of the like bone stuff as well. But my undergrad was pretty sociocultural focused. And I graduated and I got um, a job at a nonprofit, just like an office job. And 
just like had that job for a little while, but missed that like learning experience a lot. And I didn't immediately think I wanted to go back to school, but I wanted to do something where I could like learn. Because when you get out of college, you've been a student for so for your whole life, basically. And if you just jump into a job, um, I kind of felt like that stopped really abruptly. So I decided to go to field school, which is something that we do in archaeology, where you go and you like learn the applied field of archaeology and you learn how to dig, basically. So I did that just as something kind of fun and a way to keep learning. And I happened to pick a field school that was a necropolis, so an archaeological cemetery, and really liked working with and excavating and studying the bones. This was in um, Southern Europe in Spain and just like really enjoyed it. So I think probably because I was just a little bit naive, I asked the anthropologist like, hey, can I just like work for you for a while and just like follow you around to all the sites that you work on? And they said yes, which was great. So I just worked kind of as a bioarchaeologist for a while and that's when okay. I decided I wanted to go to grad school because I wanted to keep doing that work, but in a in a slightly more formal way than just like following someone around and digging. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how long were you were you doing this where you were involved with the digs? Uh, just like a year or two. I mean, I kept okay. working on excavations and I still do now, but that uh-huh. time in between like undergrad and grad school is year and a half or two years. That had to be good experience um, to help you get into grad school, I would imagine. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because that's where I learned osteology. That's where I learned how to study bones was just in the field, like, you know, working on an excavation and working with human remains and not in a classroom setting. So it was interesting to learn that first and then go into grad school and kind of learn it in this more formal setting. Okay, well, let's talk about the grad school then, because you went to yeah. London for this. So, like, I, I'm curious, like, why why London of all places? What 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 was that like? When I was working as kind of a bioarchaeologist and just working on a lot of sites, it just so happened that a lot of most of the sites that I worked on were Roman sites, and I wanted to keep working, like, kind of within studying the Roman Empire through the analysis of skeletal remains and it just makes made more sense for me to stay in Europe um, so that I could be closer to that material. I also wanted to be working at a school where English was the primary language that was spoken for instruction. And I applied to a bunch of schools in the UK and I settled on the University College London at the Institute of Archaeology because the program was forensic anthropology and bioarchaeology. So that was the first time when I really started to like see how those two fields work together and also take on that forensic anthropology aspect as well. Okay. And I want to get into that and how those two fields are related and maybe how they're different. Uh, one more thing about London though, like coming from, from the U S was that like a difficult transition? I mean, obviously the language is, I guess most, mostly the same, but some things are different. I mean, was it, was that tough for you? There was a challenge to being, far away from everyone that I knew. I went there, I like went to school without having ever even visited the country at all. I just kind of like showed up with my bag and was like, okay, I'm here for grad school, (laughs) you know? Um, Okay. (laughs) But, and I made it work. So it was a little hard just like not having uh, my kind of like network and community, but it was really good. It was a great 
master's pro I did a master's and then a PhD at the same school and, and the master's program was was really really good. I really enjoyed it. It was a nice, pretty small cohort of students. But it was also and I don't think this is specific to London or anything. I think it's just grad school, but something that I noticed about this transition from undergrad to grad school was I started to really see a divide in the folks I was working with. There were like people that were highly, highly competitive and people that were highly collaborative. And I fell more into that second group. But it was also this opportunity where I was like, starting to think about my own kind of character and identity as an academic and a scientist and thinking like, do I need to have that really competitive nature in order to succeed in this field? Or not, because I was seeing that in a lot of my classmates. So that was something that was like a moment during grad school when I really started to think about like how my own kind of character as someone that's patient and collaborative, if that could work in, in the field that I wanted to work in. So that was probably the biggest change that I noticed in grad school. And it wasn't specific to where I was, where I was, I don't think, but, um, yeah. That's interesting because there are a lot of fields like that where you've got those two kind of diverging paths that some are very competitive and then others fine. It, it seems like the collaborative ones in the end, you know, kind of in the long, the long run or whatever are more successful, I think. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Because, and I've had some experiences since then that I think we'll talk about later on that like have made me more confident in, in that, in feeling like it's okay. And it's good to have that focus, but it is a challenge too, because you do see, you know, those, those highly competitive people publishing a lot and getting really good jobs also, just like the, the collaborative people are, but it's kind of like, I don't know. It just really made me think about like, what does it take to be a researcher and an academic and a scientist and did I have what it takes? And I think I do. And I think I learned to like, understand that. But that was, mm -hmm. a, that was a big thing that I really learned in grad school. That wasn't something that was taught to me. Okay. Okay. That's, that's interesting perspective. I, I like that. I like that. All right. Now you mentioned bioarchaeology um, and forensic anthropology. And you, you studied both. And when it comes to bioarchaeology, I'll admit, I know very little about this. So can we kind of get, let's give like an overview of what that is. And then I want to talk about how those two fields um, are the same and how they're different. Yeah, sure. So okay. archaeology, kind of even more broadly than bioarchaeology, archaeology, which in North America is part of anthropology, but in most of the rest of the world, it's kind of its own field. It's, it's the study of the human past and human experience in the past through the analysis of material culture. So studying artifacts mostly. Um, and that's kind of where it differs from the field of history, which focuses more on like secondary sources and, do and documents that are studied a lot of time. Um, but it's still thinking about like humans in the past and bioarchaeology is the study of um, skeletonized human remains in archaeological contexts. So just skeletonized remains from a really long time ago, as opposed to forensic anthropology, where we study skeletonized remains in a contemporary medical legal context. So there's a lot of overlap between the fields. We use a lot of the same methodology, 
but there's also a lot of differences too. I think some, a lot of times the research in these two fields can get kind of like siloed and there's like folks who work in forensic anthropology who just like do research by and for forensic anthropologists and the same thing with bioarchaeology, even though a lot of the standard methods that we use for like the um, estimation of the biological profile are the same methods. Um, but yeah, so we're working in different contexts and we are definitely answering different questions, but we're using a lot of the same methods to do that. Okay. I think that makes sense. Now, when you're talking about analyzing uh, human remains, I mean, mostly bones is what we're talking about, right? Yeah. So there are some bioarchaeologists who study like mummified human remains, which has a lot of soft tissue still. So there's there's some cases where you study things other than just bones, but for the most part, it's bones. Okay. So if I'm going to like very badly simplify this, so bioarchaeology is old bones and forensic anthropology is kind of newer bones. Yeah, pretty much. And like in forensic anthropology, a lot of times our goal is to understand like who this person is, who this person was and what happened to them. And in bioarchaeology, we're looking at almost kind of like bigger questions about like all of the people that lived in this place at this time. What can we learn from these skeletons and how can we take that data from these skeletons and combine that with what we learned from studying the pottery and the glass and the um, botanical remains and all of these things to understand just bigger questions about like human experience and identity and interaction with landscape and, and all sorts of things. It's just kind of part of the data that we use in archaeology. Okay. I see. That's, I see. That makes sense. That's, that sounds really interesting. So you went on to specialize even more than in the study of burned and cremated remains. Now, where did this come from? Yeah, it's it, it can sound a little bit kind of bizarre at first, but if you start to think about it, a lot of people like in a modern context are cremated after death. And that was the case also throughout history for like a very, very long time. There's been um, kind of changes over time in, in the exact relationship and ratio between people who are getting buried versus cremated and other forms of, of internment. But people have been cremating folks for a really long time. Um, and when I was working before grad school, just as a bioarchaeologist in the field, because I was I was working in a lot of Roman contexts, they cremated a lot of their dead. So I just, I was just working with cremated bones kind of from the start. And I just got really interested in that. It's, it's interesting because the field is kind of picking up, but for a long time, it was pretty understudied because they're, these bones are hard. They're difficult to study. They're tiny little fragments. There's a misconception that you think about cremated bones and you think about like ashes and like, you know, something that's the texture of like sand or powder but in modern funerary contexts, oftentimes the bones are kind of ground up into that powder. But they, before that, like after they're burned and before they're ground up, they're fragments. So they do break into small pieces. But um, with experience, you can learn to identify a lot of those pieces and learn more about life and the individual. I think it's still important to kind of ask different questions of of these remains, I guess, than we do of buried remains. Um, for a long time, 
in like the history of archaeology, cremated bones were kind of ignored because they're so hard to study. And so they were either just like put into a box in museum storage and like maybe studied kind of briefly and then maybe sort of forgotten about or not even collected as part of the data collection, but like the urn was collected, but not the bones inside because it just seems like tiny little pieces that no one could, could study. But the fields developed a lot, especially over the past two or three decades. And what I've noticed and what I've tried to do in my research is to shift the questions that we ask about them. So rather than looking at biological profile, which is really obscured through the burning process, to be looking at the burning process itself. So trying to learn about the funerary process of the cremation itself, or in forensic contexts, the the burning scenario that led to the bones being in the condition that they're in. Okay, so then you get an idea of kind of the customs of the community that you find that where you found these the, the burned remains. Is that is that the idea? Yeah, that's right. So I try to what I've done in my research um, in this regard is kind of taken things that we use in forensic anthropology when studying burned bones and tweaked them a little to apply them to archaeological context. So in forensic anthropology, when there's a house fire or a car fire or a forest fire, sometimes the bones are not burned the same way across the whole body. So we call this differential burning. So maybe like part of the arm is like fully, fully burnt and the rest of the arm is not, which can give us an idea about how the body was positioned in relation to the fire and how long the fire was like next to the body or, or whatever. There's some things that we can interpret from that. With archaeological cremations, the bones are often fully cremated. So there's no really clear observable differential burning. Um, but what I tried to do was look for that on a much smaller scale by using like image analysis to see if there's differences in shape and fracture patterns across the body and between different archaeological sites to see what we could find and learn about the the process that led to the bones being in that situation. Because what happens to bones when they're burnt, they usually shrink, but sometimes they get bigger and they usually get fractures all over them, but sometimes they don't. And it's it's a little bit unpredictable. But there's some things that we like know are somehow related to the fire, but we're not 100% sure what that okay. relationship is. But we know that it has to do with the conditions of the fire. So I tried to think backwards to what conditions could produce the results that I was seeing. Does it help to know what, I guess, like what kind of people or I guess what nationality of people you're dealing with? Like you mentioned that you preferred to do to you do Roman sites. Does that make a difference in uh, analyzing the remains and, and the, the burning especially? That's that's a great question. So the benefit to studying Roman cremations is that they, t t they are often like well-preserved. A lot of their cremations were put into urns. So they were kind of protected from the environment for 2000 years. Um, and in other archeological contexts, they weren't. So in a lot of prehistoric contexts, um, which I also work in there. I worked on an excavation this past summer and hope to next summer as well. Um, some prehistoric, so older than Roman cremations that were not always in the urn. And sometimes we were seeing like a smaller percentage of the bones of the body that were deposited. So there might be some kind of 
practice that had to do with not burying all the bones, for example. So there's definitely difference um, across time and also across space. So even what I was even seeing was just um, kind of geographic locations around the same time period, but in like during the Roman occupation of Britain had significant difference in, in cremation practice, it seemed, because of the way that the bones were, were appearing. Okay, I see it. That makes sense. Um, I, I, so I want I want to go back to teaching. Uh, so you've also been teaching in forensic anthropology and bioarchaeology. So I, I guess, well, I, I want to get into what you like about teaching. But first, like, how did you? How did your interest in teaching develop? Where did that start? That's a good question. I think part of it goes back to that that like feeling that I had in grad school. That was like, there's these super competitive folks, and then there's like the collaborative folks. And I think a lot of those highly, highly competitive colleagues of mine were really focused on just like getting into the greatest PhD program and like doing research, which is great. And we need people to do research, but I really wanted to be able to balance doing research because I care a lot about it as well with teaching. Like I really liked teaching. I was able to be a a TA while I was in grad school. And I just really, I just really liked it. I liked supporting the students. And I think what I like the most about it now is the opportunity to be a mentor, which I think takes like a lot of different forms. And you can think about mentorship as this like kind of formalized, you know, like meetings and advisement. But I think there's a lot of like small moments for mentorship during teaching as well, um, something that I started doing recently in all of my classes is that the last day of class, I devote to going through all the projects we did and our learning objectives for the class and talking to the students about what transferable skills they gained from this class. Because I teach, you know, osteology and paleopathology, forensic anthropology. These Most of my students are not going to go to grad school to be a bioarchaeologist or a forensic anthropologist. A lot of them are studying anthropology and might go to grad school to study kind of anthropology more broadly. A few of them are really interested in studying bones, but most of them are not, which is kind of typical in in college classes, right? So I like to take the opportunity to remind students to kind of think about all of these opportunities that they have and think about how they can like serve them in their own goals. That like you can take an osteology class, even if you're a business major and really gain something from it and have something that you can put on your resume and help you with whatever you want to do next in life, whether you want to teach or get a job or stay in school or whatever. So I've liked to, I really liked to have that like mentor role because I think I've had a lot of good mentors uh, when I was a student and now. Um, I don't think that's something that stops when you stop being a student, but that's what I've really liked about it. Okay. I can understand that. I mean, the, the having mentors and being a mentor when you can, those, those, those things are both very important uh, in pretty much any field. And then I like the idea, like you said about uh, the transferable skills, like learning one thing and being to being able to use that in other areas and, if you think about it that way, it's like anything that you learn ever, you can use part of that at any time in, in, in your future career. 
Right. And just like learning how to take something that you learned that seems unrelated and turn and like realizing what you can actually get from that is, is yes. really important to know how to do too. Right. Mm-hmm. So then how do you, I mean, you, you said you, you kind of on the last day of class, you, you go through that with, with your students, like what kind of skills do they like? What kind, what, are, what are these transferable skills that they come up with? So, yeah, and, and yeah, I'm glad you say that you, they come up with them because that is how I yeah. kind of frame it. I kind of like, let's talk about the, you know, what we did in this class and then I kind of have them come up with them. So it's a little bit different yeah. in every, in every class. Um, yeah. and that's a reflection of, of what that class, what was involved in that class, but also the students that the diverse group of students in that particular class at that particular time. There's always stuff that comes up about like qualitative and quantitative analysis, which are both really important in forensic anthropology and osteology, and also good to show that you know how to do those things for a lot of a lot of jobs and grad school. Um, we talk a lot about science communication, which is which is big and good to know how to do. Now you know that you're a science communicator, um, right? Yeah. So I try to like. And this goes back to kind of how I frame the assessment in my class too. So one of my classes, paleopathology, their like final project, and it's something that they work on the whole year long, is creating a conference poster, like for an academic conference. You know, one of those like posters, which a lot of them are anthropology majors and not don't take many hard science classes. So it's something that's totally new to them, this new way of communicating science. And it's okay. really fun to teach them that because they get really excited when you tell them that they, they're not going to have to write a paper because they always write papers. But then when it gets to the end and it's like, you basically wrote a paper and you need to cut this down so much, so much, so much. But thinking about skills like that, like taking a huge idea that you know everything about and being able to talk about it in 30 seconds. Um, right. And calling that whatever you want to for your resume, whether you call that science communication or some other kind of communication skill that like makes sense for what you're applying for is, is mm-hmm. really important too. I, okay. I like that too. I mean, it's, it seems like it's easier to, you know, talk for an hour or half an hour or whatever about a topic. But if you have f- five minutes or something, being able to get your point across quickly and not missing any of the kind of key points yeah, that, that is definitely a, a usable skill. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. a that's a fun assignment that they do, the conference poster. It's always funny mm-hmm. because they are like, this is great. We don't have to write a paper, but it's it's actually pretty challenging the first time you do it. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Lisa Manetti. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists, like us, for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. If you're trying to understand the ever-changing world of digital pathology and image analysis, there's a new course that can help you, Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis. Now, this course was created by Dr. Alexandra Zhurov, who you might remember from episode 53 of this podcast. She also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog and hosts the Digital Pathology podcast. 
Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis aims to bridge the gap between computer science and pathology and explains some of the complicated concepts in image analysis. You can sign up for this course by following the link in the show notes. Now for the rest of my conversation with Dr. Lisa Manetti on the People of Pathology podcast. Before we get in, I want to get into like some some stories from your career, some cases you've been involved with, but let's go back to the bone lab if we could. Okay. <laughs> what What is this? Tell me about this. Yeah. So the, um, the bone lab is, so I, I teach at Drew University um, and within the anthropology department, they have an osteology lab or a bone lab. So they have a teaching collection of skeletonized human remains bones that are used for teaching from medical collections. And I use them in pretty much all of my classes to teach identification of bones and analysis and all the methods that we need to know. So we have a room where they're stored and that's the bone lab. Um, and it's interesting you bring it up because it's, it's a bit of a complicated situation because anytime you're working with human remains it's important and it should should be very important to talk about the ethics behind what you're studying and what you're doing so i do spend a lot of time at the very beginning of the semester and throughout the whole semester talking about you know you're very privileged students to be able to work with these human remains and study them mm-hmm. and the people that these individuals who are studying because they're part of probably like fairly historical medical collections probably didn't consent to their remains being used in this context, the way that, that more, um, the way that people can donate their bodies today. So it's, it's complicated and it's really important to me to like talk about that privilege that we have to study them and the respect that we need to uh, use and, and have when, when we're studying them. Some universities only as a rule only use, like resin casts of bones that you can get online. There's companies like bone clones that make these um, very high quality casts of real bones. And some universities will only use those as kind of a rule because it um, means that you don't have to acquire a osteological collection, which can be really complicated, but some universities already have them established and yeah, so that's, that's the bone lab. <laughs> okay. I see. And it, it sounds like you, you just kind of hang out in this place or. Well, <laughs> in the, well, on this campus where I teach, it's like a, it's a small liberal arts school in New Jersey. And uh-huh. um, the way that the campus is structured, it's, there's like a few academic buildings and then there's a lot of houses um, that are like, Historically, they were real houses where I think students or maybe faculty once lived. And now they're the buildings that have faculty offices and the anthropology house also has the bone lab. So it's kind of like um, as soon as you walk into the building, it's like one of the main rooms. And my office in the building is kind of like far away from everything. So I'm a little bit more like in the kind of community when I'm down there. But I do also kind of I work in that space, too, because it's part of my responsibility to care for and maintain that collection and make sure that everything stays clean and properly cared for and that the humidity is appropriate and and everything. So part of my work is also just like being in that space, but the students can come in there to study when I'm there as well. 
Okay. Okay. I see. I want to find out a little bit about how you get involved with cases. Like how, how, how do they know that they need the, the expertise of someone like you? So it's, it's kind of like any specialty within like forensic anthropology or bioarchaeology. So just like if you're working on, on a case where you have some very like specific example of trauma caused by some, some kind of specific implement, it makes sense to reach out to the person who's seen that a hundred times or 500 times, um, rather than kind of make your own guess based on like a textbook. But if that's all uh-huh. you can do, you are a forensic anthropologist. So you have the background where you, you understand biomechanics and stuff. But it's the same kind of thing where sometimes when folks who know me are working on cases that are, that involve burned bones, um, they know that I'm a person that can kind of consult those cases. So I have a relationship with a lab in Athens. That's one of these kind of situations where in cases like that, they're able to, to reach out to me and I'm happy to, to work with them. Are you able to give me a story or two of, of cases you've been involved with that might've been interesting or unusual? Yeah, I can tell you um, about one of them because we published it as a case report. So okay. it's um, published, so it's out there. Um, and this was with um, Dr. Konstantinos Moraitis, who's the forensic anthropologist that I was, you know, working with. He's the main one at that lab in Athens. And Dr. Mersini Volgari was also working with me on this case. And there were um, burned human bones, and we just needed to kind of learn more about them. And what we ended up identifying, so so the first step in any um, kind of forensic anthropological analysis, you have the bones and you want to put them in anatomical position. So you put them out on a table and you put the arms where the arms go and the legs where the legs go. So it looks like a skeleton, right? Because you know what a skeleton is supposed to look for and you're looking for specific features and it just makes sense to be organized in that manner to okay. before you start your analysis. And when we organized the bones in anatomical position, we started to see that the patterns of burning didn't match the anatomical position, that there were like um, pieces immediately next to each other that were immediately next to each other, like in the body. And one of them was like totally, totally burned, calcined, had, you know, um, no more like organic component left, totally burned. And then a piece that should be right, you know, a centimeter away from it in life was unburned. So that oh. led us to understand that these bones had already been skeletonized before they were burnt. So this wasn't a body that was burnt, but a pile of bones that was burned um, that just like happened to be in, in a position where there were pieces that don't belong next to each other that were next to each other that got burned. So understanding that, allowed us to learn more about this particular case and kind of piece these things together, sort of going backwards. So that's an example of how this works in forensic anthropology, this idea of differential burning and looking at like what parts are burnt and what's not and what would we expect and how is this different from that and what can we learn from it? And um, to speak, if it's okay to speak briefly about kind of how I do this in bioarchaeological examples as well, Um, when, like I said, the bones are totally burnt and really small fragments, 
I use image analysis, like I said, to look for patterns across the body and working on in, in intern on international cases has made me prioritize something specific in my research, which is to work on developing methods that are really accessible and essentially free to apply. Because a lot of people who study burned bones, and I do this too, learn to use and learn to apply like really, really high tech methods of like doing lots of quantitative analysis and like using like really expensive, fancy laboratory equipment to to do this and study burned bones. But, and it's really good because it helps us in the kind of academic sense to like learn more about this. But in a lot of labs and not just internationally in the United States as well, um, not every lab is equipped with all of that equipment or the time to apply those kinds of methods. So something that's been really important to me in my research is developing really accessible methods that work in underfunded and just sort of averagely funded labs. Um, because it, when you do that, it means that more people can kind of work in this field. You can start to develop a more diverse community of, of, scientists and academics and practitioners that can apply these methods because they're not just limited to people that work at really high-tech labs. So doing that and kind of creating like comparative methods that are easy and free to apply using open access software and stuff like that has been really important to me because of the experiences I've had working in in different labs. Okay. I can see that, that, yeah, that that having the access that, that makes a lot of sense and, and, like you're, you're mentioning a more diverse field, all that's the, all, all good things. <laughs> one, one experience that I want to hear more about, and we got connected through Dr. Marion Hamill yeah, and she was telling me about a trip to, I guess it wasn't a trip. It wasn't a vacation. It was work, <laughs> but it was to Belize. Um, and you were part of that, part of that experience. And I'm, I'm curious how you got involved with it. And then can you tell me about it? What, what happened there? Yeah, totally. Um, so this was, this was a, and it's funny, like we say trip too, because, you yeah. know, a lot of folks who work in, in this field and, and definitely in archaeology work a lot internationally and, and we're privileged to get to, to get to travel for our work. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so this, this project was, was started by, um, Kimberly Moran, who works at Rutgers Camden. So she's really like the one who, who set this all up and connected connected all of us. And she, through a Fulbright specialist grant, which is this really a special type of grant by the Fulbright program, which is, which is an interesting one. It allows institutions, any kind of like academic scientific institutions internationally to um, look for specialists in whatever field that they need. And these host institutions kind of identify the goals and things that they need help with, and then can get matched with specialists that can help with them. So, so Kim set up this program that was initially funded by the Fulbright specialist um, grant. And after working with the folks at the Belize at the um, national forensic science service, they identified some, some goals and she was able to help them meet those goals by creating this team of forensic scientists. And um, it was a really great group of folks from all different um, backgrounds. So Dr. Hamill was there, who's a um, pathologist. 
Um, Nikki Johnson was there, who you've also interviewed, who's an amazing photographer, and yes. a lot of a lot of other just great scientists were like in this team. And um, it was also all women, which was empowering to be a part of this team. Um, but some of the goals that the National Forensic Science Service identified in Belize, um, they wanted help developing a forensic anthropology unit. They wanted some help with skeletal analysis. They wanted some training for all different types of folks that work in criminal justice and death scene investigation, some entomological data collection, um, some outreach. They had a lot of goals they wanted to meet. So, so Kim created this team because she has just like an incredible network and is one of those collaborative, not competitive people that I was telling you about, um, created right. this team of folks that could meet these goals with all of our different expertise and backgrounds. Um, and we worked there and, and it was a great experience. And I've stayed in touch with the, um, team from Belize and have been really happy to like continue doing research with them and working with them. But the thing that was really special about this project for me, it was like, it's weird to say this about something that happened so recently, but I feel like it was quite a formative um, experience for me. When Kim first reached out to me and asked me to be a part of this team, I was, and just kind of like leading up to it, I was really nervous about it. And I'm happy to be like transparent about this because I think it's important for um, early career researchers and students to kind of like hear what these okay. experiences are like. But I was really nervous to, to join this team because I felt like I was the most inexperienced one. And some of the all of the people on this team were, you know, these really accomplished women in science. And I was like, what am I doing on this team? And I felt really insecure about myself and I was really nervous about it. But when we arrived and started working together, we all worked together really well. And I could see that these were all supportive, collaborative folks who wanted to help this lab achieve the goals that they identified and to work together. And we had these great conversations as a team. I kind of shared these feelings with them towards the end of the project and was like, you know, I, I was really nervous coming into this and this is why, and this is, it turned out not to be like that. And it turned out to be great. And, and everyone was really supportive and they were like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, you deserve to be here and, and whatever, which is great. But we also had these really great conversations um, that were often led by Dr. Hamill because she's one of these great, collaborative folks who's able to yes. connect lots of people about how there's kind of this tr historical tradition within lots of scientific fields, medicine, of needing to know the right person in order to get the right job. And a lot of times that person that's the right, quote unquote, right person that you need to know to get to the job is like an older man who's just like is the gatekeeper of this like information or network. And we hate that idea and <laughs> kind of talked about as a group, how we can be these kind of people for each other and create this collaborative, not create, but continue to develop this collaborative network that Kim already sort of put together and expand that for our own colleagues and students to be able to like have that network of helping people achieve their goals without that like patriarchal gatekeeping 
aspect to it. Um, so it was, it was a great experience for me in that regard because it kind of solidified that thing that I'd thought about in grad school that was like, is it okay that I am not this super competitive, like aggressive scientist, but that I actually just want to work with people and learn. Um, and it solidified that there's other people out there that are like that and that those are the good people to work with. So it was a great experience. I can't, um, talk about a lot of, you know, the cases and stuff, but, um, the experience from like the scientist's perspective was, was very, very valuable. Okay. Okay. Would you do something if, if the opportunity came up, would you do something like that again? Yes, absolutely. I would do something like that again because I enjoy the casework and I'm happy to support labs and I like to, you know, be able to teach and build capacity in other labs and among other communities so folks can can apply these methods and do this work on their own and achieve their goals. But I would also like to do this because it's just great to like build these networks. And if yeah. I ever have the opportunity to kind of set something up like this that can support other people as well. I'd be so happy to do that. This does a project like this does seem to play to all of your strengths. I mean, you've got, like you said, the, the collaboration, which is something that you like a lot at the teaching aspect and also giving more people access to anthropology methods, archeology span methods, like you were talking about earlier. So it's right. got all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it was all, I mean, the goals, that we were trying to meet were developed by the forensic science service. It wasn't like we showed up and we're like, you should be doing this. You know, it mm -hmm. was like, let's, how can we help you achieve the goals that you want to achieve? And a lot of that, a lot of it came down to capacity building and being able to just like teach some things that allowed folks to continue teaching other people that they know. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was a great, great experience. Okay. Okay. All right. So last question. So if someone's listening to this and they're going, wow, bioarchaeology sounds amazing. I want to do that. What, what advice would you have for them? Well, first I want to thank you, Dennis, for always having this as your last question, because I've listened to several of your episodes of the podcast kind of preparing for this one. And I mm. love that it always ends on this because I think it's, so valuable and there's something really unique about it and i mean the the your the the diversity of the backgrounds of the folks that you interview kind of speak to the fact that there's lots of different ways to come to be someone who works in this field which is yep. just so great um mm -hmm. but my advice would be to be that collaborative person and to try to look for those collaborative people. There's plenty of folks out there who do not want to collaborate and share data and they have reasons for that. And, and there's, I'm sure benefits to working that way and lots of stuff gets published by people that do that and, and whatever. But in my experience, looking for the collaborative people and for the mentors that are supportive of students and early career academics is so valuable. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. One of them, I mean, it points back to like my first experience at field school of just asking like, Hey, can I just like work for you for a year and like follow you around and like, you know, dig. 
And the answer was yes. And I've continued to do that since then. And that's how I met Kim, who organized the trip in Belize. I just sent her an email. She was someone I had never met before. And I sent her an email because I thought there was something that we could collaborate on. And I've done this loads of times. And I always tell my students to do it. Like if you read a paper by someone and you're really interested in their work, just reach out to them. Like the worst thing that can possibly happen is that they just don't email you back, which is fine, you know? And right. that's happened to me plenty of times too. And sometimes sure. people say no to stuff and it's okay. Um, but I've, I've met a lot of people that way and it gives you an opportunity to find those collaborative folks. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. Look for the collaborative people, look for mentorship from these like supportive people and just don't be afraid to email people. I've gotten the majority of the guests that have been on this podcast have come either through someone else that connected me to them, such as yourself, or just, you know, like you said, you read a paper by someone that sounds interesting, send them an email and yeah. they responded. Yeah. That's, that's, a brilliant advice. I love that. And I, I try to tell a lot of people about that, just yeah, collaboration and reaching out to people. Cause you never know, you could build a relationship with that person and you never know what, what benefits that could have for, for, for both of you. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I think, yeah, no one ever told me to do that. And I kind of wish I had started doing it sooner because mm. it definitely yep. feels a little bit scary that you're like, Oh, this is some like, important researcher, but like everyone's just a person and people right. tend to want to talk about the stuff that they study and it's, it usually pays off. <laughs> yep. Yep. I agree. I agree. That's, that's great advice. I love that. I think that's a, that's a good place to end. Uh, Dr. Minetti, this has been really interesting. I appreciate learning more about you and uh, about your work. Uh, Dr. Lisa Minetti, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with forensic photographer Nikki Johnson as she talks about her advice for those trying to break into this field. For anybody listening who maybe they're interested in a career as a forensic photographer, mm -hmm. what, what kind of advice would you have for them? I would say definitely, you know, make sure that you are just forget about anything you've seen on TV or media, anything at all. Forget about it. Yeah. Basically, make sure that you're, you know, understand that you're working as a team. Make sure that you're good at communicating uh, your interpersonal skills. You got to make sure, you know, you got to communicate with your assistants and the, the technicians and the doctor. You've got to make sure that you are willing to work long hours. I don't. I don't think I've had a regular lunch hour in a while, a few months, um, basically, because until the autopsies are done, I'm, that's that's when I'm done. And, well, I'm done with that aspect of the job. You've got to understand, um, you know, learn anatomy, but also understand that you are. You have to respect the case and everyone around it but you just you know just get in shoot and then kind of step back but always be observant of everything that's going on around you you can hear the rest of my conversation with nikki johnson in episode 91 all right a big thank you to dr lisa manetti this one was really interesting and i like the stories uh from her career so far especially uh the uh, project in belize I like her ideas about expanding access to forensic methods, to anthropological methods, and providing 
open source software and all of the things that she mentioned during the episode. And like she said, it makes for a more diverse field and it allows people in low resource settings to analyze human remains using these methods. And really when you, when, when it gets right down to it, it's just helping more people. And finally, when she was talking about people who are collaborative versus people who are competitive, and that really struck me because I've heard something like that before in various different fields that there are a lot of really competitive people who aren't willing to collaborate. And to me, that's kind of sad because it seems like the more that we collaborate, the faster we're going to advance all of these fields together. And it reminded me of a quote that what the way I heard it was attributed to an African proverb. And it went something like, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And in the spirit of collaboration, Dr. Mendetti asked me to include her email address in the show notes for this episode. So if you're interested in forensic anthropology or bioarchaeology and you want to ask her about them, feel free to look in the show notes uh, and you'll get her email there. Also in the show notes, you'll find links to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share this show with others. And I see you in Jamaica and in South Africa and Brazil. Thank you all for listening. And mis amigos no Brazil, quero falar com vocês. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank. And I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.